Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. It's a new day and the Lord is doing new things in our lives. Amen. Hallelujah. Are we excited to be here this evening? Amen. It is well. The Lord is our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that time spent in the house of the Lord is not wasted. And so we should be excited that we are privileged to be able to meet and worship and fellowship without any fear. Some people, not everyone has it like we have it. And so when we have to meet, let's be excited. Hallelujah. Forget about the pain of the day, the stress of the day, the troubles of the day. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 4, that there is hope only for the living. And it is better to be a living dog than a dead lion. So if you are alive today, there is hope for you. Amen. Amen. Pastor Justine has already welcomed all of us, but I want to welcome you once again to this edition of our Get Understanding Seminars. We thank God that you have joined us. We are excited to have you worshiping with us. If you have just joined, this is the midweek service of Christ Church International. It is not an accident that you are here. The Lord has something for you. You are welcome to our Get Understanding edition today. It is a time where our very own Bishop James uses the scriptures to answer questions for us in all areas of our lives. And so we always learn something new. And I know that you will learn something new today. Hallelujah. Amen. Today we have part two of what we started last week. Last week it was all about ministry. And Bishop taught us a lot. And if you forget everything or anything, don't forget imprecatory prayers. It was a new word that we learned last week. Hallelujah. Amen. This week we are continuing because we had some questions that came through our email that we were not able to get to. And so this week, Bishop is going to use those questions and tell us and answer those questions and give us more information about some of the scriptural um, issues and foundations that we have in the Bible and how it applies to us. So get your pens and your, and your notepads, your Bibles, and everything ready that you need. And as Pastor Justine said, send the link to your friends and family. When we love, we share, and we care. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 So at this point, it is time for us to welcome Bishop um, to be with us. So can I see the emojis and the shouting and the clapping as we welcome our very own Bishop James Hansen Saki. Amen, amen, amen. So before um, Bishop takes over, I just want to remind us that if you have any questions, please post them on YouTube, Christchurch HQ. You can also post them on Facebook, Christchurch International, or send us an email to getunderstanding at christchurches.org and we will pick it up, and um, Bishop will be able to answer them for us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Papa, you are welcome to get understanding. Thank you once again um, for another session. We learned a lot last week, and we know that we will learn a lot this week as well. Amen. 
Amen. Pray that your Holy Spirit will provide answers from your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Let my hearers be educated, empowered, inspired, that they will walk under the leading of the Holy Spirit and the understanding that is given through God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Papa. You're welcome. Okay. Please, do I have permission to start? Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So we will get right into it. Um, don't forget, if you have any questions as we go along, um, please put them on the chat or get send them to get understanding at Christchurches.org. So we have some very um, interesting and educative questions uh, mm. this evening. And um, I'm looking forward to the answers because I think that um, I will learn something new, as we always do. Amen. And so I will start right away, Bishop, with the, um, the first question. It's a four-in-one or five-in-one, but I'll ask them a little bit at a time so that you okay. take your time to answer them for us. So the, the questioner said that... Um, Please, I need some clarity on some verses in the book of Leviticus. So all the way back into the Old Testament. The first one from Leviticus chapter 12 verses 1 to 4. And the question is, why is a woman considered unclean after the miracle of childbirth? Mm. And is that still applicable in our current dispensation? All right. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me? Is it... Clear enough. Um, I need a response before I proceed. I'm told that the last time some people could not hear until somewhere in the middle. So I want to be sure that everyone is hearing me very clearly. Yes, we have confirmation, please. Okay. Yes. All right. You are all welcome once again. Um, these are very interesting pieces of questions. Uh, from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12, um, all the way to chapter 15, sometimes can be very problematic to the um, uninitiated or to the one who does not understand the various dispensations and the timings of these teachings in the word of God. And I think that it will be very important that we read some of them. Um, so I think that the first question was, what was the question? Leviticus 12, 1 to 4. So Leviticus 12, 1 to 4. Can I have some quiet here? Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Please read that for me. Leviticus 12, 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. After waiting 33 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. During this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy, and she must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over. Amen. 
Sorry for that technical break there. Um, so we read a scripture in Leviticus 12, which um, I would want you to read it again because, again, why is that there? Leviticus 4, um, sorry, 12 verses 1 to 4. I'll take it again. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. After waiting 33 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. During this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy, and she must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over. Amen. Amen. Right. Okay. Now, for us to understand these chapters that talks about uncleanness, um, you'll find out that the law of Moses had two um, separate divisions when it comes to cleanliness. Um, we have got what is called the, the ceremonial uncleanness or the purification. And then we've got the moral uncleanness. The ceremonial uncleanness is not sin. The moral uncleanness is sin. Um, when we get this basic um, understanding, it will lead us to the interpretation of especially chapter 12 all the way to chapter 15 and even 16. And so the idea of something being unclean is easy to be understood in the terms of being sinful, but it is not sinful in the context of the ceremonial uncleanness. It is the fact that I'll explain, it is the fact that remember that everything that was happening in the Old Testament was a template of the reality to come. So all the washings and all the cleansing and everything, it's God sending the message that no matter what humans will do, we are still not clean enough to come to his presence. And so we need some form of cleansing that will bring us you know, into that form of righteousness in his presence. It is in Leviticus 20 that you will see that the breaking of certain laws then constitute the moral uncleanness. So when we are morally unclean, that is sinful. But to be ceremonially unclean is the ceremony of certain things that we do that we, it's a sign that you mustn't come before the Lord. The other reason why this was also given, remember that whenever God was giving them the commandments of things they must do and mustn't do in the Old Testament, he was always doing it in comparison to what the pagan nations were doing before. So most of them were involved in quite a lot of, um, you know, their worship of their gods involves a lot of sexual activity. And therefore, God wanted to separate them from that to say, you can't just do anything and come before my presence. And so he wanted to really distinguish between these aspects of their practices to the righteousness of God. Now, when we come to the question in, 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 uh, on hand as to 
why would a woman give birth and she is considered unclean? And so we have talked about the uncleanness, that this is part of the ceremonial uncleanness. Now, because you will notice that when you read the scriptures further, um, you will see four kinds of uh, body discharges that are considered as unclean. Now, this uncleanness as a result of body discharges are classified as ceremonially unclean because of the primary function of the primary reason that the account in Leviticus 17 tells us that the blood is the life of every living thing. So body fluids are considered life. And when it is discharged or thrown out, it's considered unclean because it has come out of life and you have put life out there. And so this becomes the basis for which these rules were given. And that explains why, for instance, as we will find out later on, you will notice that even the semen of a man coming out is deemed unclean and therefore must be clean before for, for a whole day. And the same way a woman's menstrual blood is seen like that. Therefore, when a woman is in her menses or she gives birth, because it involves the discharge of blood in the process of childbirth, that is therefore ceremonially she is unclean until she is separated for a period of time and then she is able to approach the holiness of God in terms of the tabernacle. And so I hope I'll be able to provide some understanding. So instead of reading the scriptures, we need to understand the historicity of why this scripture is there and so that we can distinguish between the two that there is a moral sin. Leviticus 20, you will see them there. Anyone who commits adultery has committed a moral sin, a moral uncleanness. But when it comes to these things, these ones are the ceremonial uncleanness because blood has come out. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you very much, Papa. This is why you must not miss our services. Um, Bishop has explained to us the difference between moral sin, moral uncleanliness, and ceremonial uncleanliness. Mm. Amen. 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 Mm. So I have, um, you've sort of touched on some of my questions, so I'll mm. ask them yes. um, just in case you have um, something more to add to it. So mm. I may put a few of them together. Mm. So um, Leviticus 15, 16 to 17, mm. why does God consider a man and a woman unclean after having sexual intercourse? And then 15 verse 19, mm. are women still considered unclean by God during the period of menstruation? And then um, the next one, can women go to church during their monthly period and why? So I'll sort of put all of them together. <laughs> uh, these are very interesting questions, but they are very good questions because I think not too long ago we, we read Leviticus. And so it is very instructive that at least someone could follow up with questions there, which means that we are learning in this church. Um, so back to the question. This time it was from Leviticus 15. 15. And um, you have asked three questions. Can you remind me of the first one so that I can... Why does God consider a man and a woman unclean after having sexual intercourse? Right. So I think that the Leviticus 15 account, is there a verse there that we can read? I, I thought because it's a teaching service that we are uh, having it in, in this format, which of course was also a style by which Jesus taught. Many times he sat and he taught 
and they came to him and asked him questions. So what we are doing is rightly biblical. You can trust me that anything we do, we'll have a scripture to support it. Okay, so yes. Leviticus 15, 16 to 17. Whenever a man has an emission of semen, mm. he must bathe his entire body in water and he will remain ceremonially unclean until the next evening. Mm. Any clothing or leather with semen on it must be washed in water, and it will remain unclean until evening. Mm. Um, 18. After a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, they must each bathe in water, and they will remain unclean until the next evening. All right. So let's get the understanding here. It is God who created sex. And sex is created by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. There are three main reasons for the institution of the sexual act. Number one is for married couples to enjoy in the context of the marriage. The second is for procreation, is for um, sustaining the race, the human race. And the third is to maintain the covenant of God for his people. Um, because when the child is born, he is reminded of God, and therefore there is a continuity of the covenant of humans with God. When we stop having children, we stop the continuity of the covenant of God. So these are the three main reasons why God instituted sex. Now, therefore, for God to institute it, how would he turn himself around and appear to have given a scripture that suggests it is unclean? Again, back to the basic premise of the biblical interpretation of these texts, that this is the difference between the moral uncleanness and ceremonial uncleanness. And remember that, therefore, when it says when a man has sexual intercourse with a woman, he's talking about married people, because the same chapter also told us the consequences for adultery. By chapter 20, we see there. So when the scripture talks against fornication and adultery, the Ten Commandments have what to say about you shall not commit adultery, then that tells you that when God again comes with such a rule, he's talking about married people. Again, the answer to why was the fact that, again, in the Old Testament, we're talking about any emissions out of the human body is therefore considered unclean. It makes the person unclean. Anything he touches is unclean until they have been washed and then a sacrifice is made and they become clean. You know, and I do remember some years ago whilst we were looking at these scriptures in, in secondary school, we used to think if, if you were in the days of Israel, then every day you have sex with your wife, you have to be cleaned. You know, until the next day, until the next day. And you are not allowed to come into the temple area or the tabernacle near it at all because semen is considered life. So what has happened is that some life has come out of you and therefore has made you ceremonially unclean, but not morally unclean. Now remember that when we come to cleanliness, we've got animals that were clean, animals that were unclean. Places that were clean, places that were unclean. So whenever there is any issue out of the human body, this comes under the moral uncleanness. And therefore, that is the context in which the sexual intercourse was looked at from this account. Amen. Amen. 
I will continue my journey. Yes. <laughs> Leviticus 15, 19. Mm. Um, it says, whenever a woman has a menstrual period, mm. she'll be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Mm. And anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until the evening. Mm. And the question says, are women still considered unclean by God during um, the period of menstruation? And if so, why? Okay. Right. So, again, under the law of biblical interpretation, we go back to the Old Testament and we see that because blood is coming out of her, it is therefore ceremonially unclean. Now, these things were all a shadow of the real thing to come. And in order to answer it directly, in, under the New Testament dispensation, under the dispensation of the grace of Christ that we operate now, the dispensation of the law, the dispensation of the law, which is the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament laws, all ended at the cross. The moral laws carried on, that one passed through the cross. So the Ten Commandments passed through the cross. That is why even in nations of the world, thou shalt not murder is still standing. You shall not commit adultery is still standing. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods is still standing. Honor your father and your mother is still standing. These are the moral laws. They pass through the cross. But all the sacrificial system and the ceremonies all ended with Christ because he's now the real thing. All uncleanness that these things stood for in the Old Testament ended on the cross. The real raw sacrifice was provided. Anything necessary to cleanse us was released that day. The blood of animals that used to cover and the washings and all those things, Christ provided all the washing and all the cleansing on the cross. I want us to look at Romans 10:4, if I'm not mistaken. My memory normally doesn't fail me by the grace of God. But Romans chapter 10, verse 4, I think if we read it in the New International Version, and I think that even the uh, Revised English Version um, or the Revised Standard Version, we will see that simple scripture answers everything that today, if you are a woman and you are menstruating, you can still go to church. Romans 10, 4. Yes. Christ is the culmination of the law mm. so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen. What does the NLT say? The NLT says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. Mm. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Christ is the purpose for which all the law was made. All these ceremonial laws, all these things, Christ is the reason for which they were made. And it says, therefore, in Christ, we have now attained the righteousness. So when you are born again and you are in Christ, you are free. <clears throat> and because Christ came, no one is being held to these things anymore because there is no uncleanness ceremonially. But there is uncleanness morally. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Amen.
Christ finished it all on the cross. Mm. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you very much, Bishop. Um, yeah. These are really good teachings for us um, mm. because we do have um, some churches amongst us who still hold on to these things. So it's yeah. good for us to know these things mm. so that we can also share it with other people. Amen. And you have answered my next question, which was, can women go to church during their monthly period? So <laughs> that has been answered. But I will take us back to Leviticus 12, please. Right. The verse um, 2. It says, if a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she'll be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Mm. And then verse 5 mm. says, if a woman gives birth to a daughter, mm. she'll be ceremonially unclean for two weeks. And the question <coughs> is, why is the time set aside for a woman's purification different depending on the sex of the child? Okay, this is a very valid and legitimate question. And from the onset, it sounds very sexist, um, as if it discriminates against women. Um, but the answer lies back to the premise that I introduced. Um, remember that under normal circumstances, when a woman is menstruating, she is kept away because blood has come out. Now, when she gives birth to a child, she is also supposed to be ceremonially unclean. Um, when she's menstruating, she's ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, when she gives birth, if it is a boy, she's allowed to be ceremonially unclean for seven days, which is normal. And then on the eighth day, the child is named. And then she's then supposed to be separated for 33 days. Um, that is what the scripture meant when Jesus was about to be taken to the temple. They said, and when the time of her purification, Mary, was completed, this is that time of purification. 33 plus 7 gives us 40 days in which a woman becomes separated and then for her to now be accepted as ceremonially clean, which again represents what God is saying, that even what we will call enjoyment through sex or whatever, we are still not righteous. Therefore, we are anything we do, we are not holy unless we are washed to relate with him. That is exactly what God was showing them in those days. As compared to the pagans who can do anything, and even sacrifice their own children in, in the blood, in, in fire and all of those things. So this is uh, the difference. Now, when it is a girl, mommy's period of separation and her ceremonial, um, I don't know whether to call it a sentence or imprisonment, is double. Um, it's double. It becomes 14 days. And, and the... There have been many schools of thought on what it is because you'll find out that as you read these scriptures, there are many times God gives a law and then he explains why. And there are some of these things, he just says it and he didn't explain why. It's only that we have to marry a lot of scriptures together and see does it fit into the grand plan of God and where is he going with this. And so when it came to being a girl, the reason why mommy have to do double separation is to also do it on behalf of of the girl. So that means that mommy does her own and the girl too, against the future purification she'll be involved in, she too, mommy does that on her behalf. So instead of seven days, 
hers becomes 14 days. And therefore, and then when it comes to the next level after the 14 days, she now, instead of the boy, where she weighs 33 days, making a total of 40 days, for the girl, she has double of that. So 33 plus 33, 66 days plus the 14 days. So she has 80 days of separation. Because it's a girl. Because the girl will menstruate one day in the future. And all of that. And that is the reason why the woman is separated. Some other scholars have said it is double punishment for Eve's sin. But we can't find it clearly uh, there. Uh, this is the best explanation for that, the reason why the woman have to take the double punishment. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Papa. We are blessed to have a father who takes his time to explain these things um, to us. Amen. 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 So we are moving on, uh, Bishop. Yes. My next question is, is it acceptable to God for a husband and wife to have sex whilst the woman is menstruating or having her period? Um, they, because of a particular scripture, I think it's still related to one of these scriptures in Leviticus where it says that when a woman is in her menses and a man has sex with her, uh, he has uncovered the fountain of her blood flow and therefore he is unclean. Now remember that under the ceremonial laws, menstruation itself already makes the woman unclean. And therefore, and then the scripture says, whoever touches her becomes unclean too. Um, I, I wish we were reading these scriptures. But I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it fits into the Leviticus 15 uh, set of um, scriptures that, that, that talks about that. Anyway, whilst you search for it, let me uh, provide some more answers. Um, so back to, to that, as a result of that, many people, and I know that certain uh, religions even try to trace it to that, to say this. I, I do remember, uh, I know someone uh, very well who uh, would not allow his daughters to cook for him or do anything because they are all ceremonially unclean, you know, even, even in our days. Uh, whenever they are in their menses, they are not supposed to touch anything. They are all unclean. Uh, but this doesn't apply. In the context of the scriptures, Christ has been the one that cleanses us from his blood. Whatever the uncleanness represented, it, the ultimate is in Jesus Christ. And he sorted that one out. Now, when it comes to sexual intercourse with a wife who is menstruating, um, I think that it comes down to individual choices. Um, and it must be under mutual agreement because actually during that time, um, many women don't find it very um, appealing to have sex. Um, I'm not a woman, but I know that uh, I've studied a lot about women. And so it is not a time where they feel that way. Uh, but then as Paul advised, everything must be by mutual consent. Um, some don't find it very uh, pleasant um, with blood flowing. And so it, it all depends on the circumstance. Um, I know that in certain uh, levels of marriage counseling, uh, especially with commuter couples, uh, it has, for instance, couples have been separated for a long time and, and then you know, one finds herself in town or himself in town for a brief moment. And if she is in her menses, what happens when they all desire for each other? At that point, 
there must be certain compromises. Uh, but then it does not make it sinful under our current dispensation, except that it is a matter of choice, comfortability, and how you feel about it. Thank the scripture you. there? Yes, yes. okay. Uh, it's Leviticus 2018. 2018, yes. yes. Okay. If a woman has sexual relations with a woman during her menstrual period, mm. both of them must be cut off from the community, mm. for together they have exposed the source of her blood flow. Mm. So that's exactly um, the, the reason uh, for that. Thank yes. you very much, Papa. You're welcome. So it is by consent. Yes. And a, an agreement between the two people whether yes. they want to do it or not. Yes. And we are moving from Leviticus to Revelations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Revelations chapter 3, verse 12. Mm. It says, what does it mean? Um, can I read it, Papa, and then we'll... Yes, please, read it, yeah. Revelations 3.12, and this is NLT. Mm. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I write on them the name of my God, mm. and they will be citizens in the city of my God, mm. the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Amen. Amen. Is what is this new name that will be written? Is Jesus getting a new name, or are there different names for different things he has done in the past, present, and future? That's a very, very powerful um, um, question. Which the reason I'm hesitating is is how you can pick that out of that verse. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's very easy to overlook it uh, where it says I will, I, will, I, will, I will give a certain reward and then it says I will give him the name. Um, first of all, it says I will write on him the name of my God and then the heavenly Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And then, then somewhere there, at the last bit there, it says then I will give him my new name, mm -hmm. uh, which is very, very powerful to, to be, you know, that detail to pick out. Um, the essence of God does not change. Um, it says, I am God, uh, the God of Jacob, and I change not. Um, then the scripture also says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, some people have thought that that scripture in Hebrews uh, means that there's no way Jesus is going to take on another name because Jesus is the same yesterday. He's not talking about the name the same yesterday. He's talking about the person who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, but Jesus discloses here in, in, in this account in Revelation 3 that those who will overcome, those who will stand um, the trials of life, the trials of ministry, the challenges that come to their Christian work, he's going to give them a reward. And one of the things was that you write on them the name of his God. Um, that we know. That is Jehovah. But this new name is not disclosed yet in the scriptures. Now we know that he, in fact the root word there, that the new name, 
is seen by many scholars to imply a new title. Um, and, and of course, we know that most of his names have always gotten a con got a connection to do with his function. And so when he's king of kings, we know what that is. And when he's lord of lords, we know that is. And when he's a prince of peace, we know that. And when he's a lord of hosts, he's also. So you see that his name is always related to his covenant and his operation. And he's saying there's going to be a new name. And I think in, in Revelations 19, there, there is, the scripture mentions the fact that he, there is a name in which no one knows yet. And so that will confirm that at this stage, we won't know what the name is, but there is going to be a name. Um, in, in the account in, in, in Philippians, where we are told that this mind should be in us, which was in Christ Jesus, and therefore he has been given a name that is above every name, we are told what that name was, because the next verse is, even the name of Jesus at the call of which every knee shall bow. But in this revelation account of something yet to come, he says, I will write my new name on you. Now, all these things that he's going to do with us, right? The name of the new Jerusalem, the name of his God on us, and his own new name, it's a prophetic indication of identity. Remember, we are giving names to identify our family. So when we get lost anywhere, when we mention our names, it can take us home. Um, in the same way, he says that I'm going to mark you, I'm going to identify you in the future. Uh, with, apart from the two that we will know, uh, the Jehovah, which is the Yahweh, which the Hebrew actually don't like to mention, that is why they break it into the YHWH, um, which is Jehovah, Yehovah, Yahweh, which is a very holy name. They don't like to easily say it, uh, that we, we just say it. But a Hebrew, a Jew, is, finds it difficult to say they, they know the weight of that name. We know the name of his God will be that. Um, we know the name of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will be. But this new name, um, we don't know it yet. And we cannot conjecture. Every other one, he puts it there. Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He's mentioned all of those ones. But this one, I think let's read the Revelations 19. Uh, I think towards the last verse, uh, I, maybe, I think it's 19, Revelations 19. Revelations 19, 12, I think. Um, his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Mm -hmm. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. Mm. Yes, continue. Um, he wore so let's take it from verse 11 so that people can see the context of okay. who this vision was about. Revelations 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like Jews flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh, 
was written his this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Amen. Amen. At this stage, we, we don't need revelation to know who is this. Because again, you find his eyes were like flames of fire. We've said that introduction in Revelations 1, when um, he first revealed himself to John. And, and this was the description of him. Um, Revelations 3.12, the same person who was talking in Revelations 3.12 is the same person we are talking about, Jesus Christ. And we are told in the verse number um, 12 that he had a name written that no one knew except himself. So there is going to be a name, um, which when we get there, it will be revealed. Uh, so at this time, yes, there will be a new name. Uh, it will not replace Jesus, but it, it, there is going to be a new name. Remember, his name has been progressive from scriptures. Uh, when Moses asked him what is his name, he says, I am is my name, and this shall be my name forever. But over the time, we have seen him being invoked as Jireh, as uh, Shaddai, um, as Rohi, etc., all the way through. So based on his um, dispensational ministration and his actions, his name is linked to that. And I think this is going to be the final name in the millennial kingdom when he returns physically on the earth to reign. Amen. 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 So yes, there's going to be a new name. We don't know what the new name is, but we know that in the Bible, his, mm. uh, the name of Christ has always been linked to his function. Mm. Amen. Amen. And we await what this new name will be. Hallelujah. Amen. May we be there with him when the new name is revealed. And may we be one of the people on whom this new name will be written. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if you have just joined us, you are welcome to Christ Church International's midweek service. And today we are having a get understanding section where Bishop uses the scripture to answer all questions in all areas of our lives. So we've already gone from Re uh, Leviticus to Revelations, and we move on to marriage. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting yes. now. So my question is, mm. is it okay for two Christian couples to marry after five months, or is it too fast? <laughs> to marry after five months yeah. of knowing of each knowing other. each other, yes, please. Um... It is yes and it is no, and it can be in the middle. <laughs> but let me help you. Um, I think that there are no hard and fast rules when we read the Bible as to how long we can know each other to get married. But it is wise. And the reason why you may see a certain period of time uh, being... Um, you know, prescribed in many churches um, so that we can go through premarital counseling, etc. We know that people say, oh, others went through premarital counseling. Their marriage didn't go anywhere anyway. Um, and others didn't do anything at all. And they're still having a good time in marriage. Yes, these are all variables. But then wisdom is always necessary to profit, as the scripture says. And it is because over many years, of church ministry, it becomes very obvious that sometimes 
when we don't give a little bit of time, major errors are committed. Um, as it's always said, it is, it is better to break an engagement than to break a wedding. It is better to break a relationship than to break an engagement. So every level becomes serious as you go along. And, and therefore, in order to avoid some of the mistakes and dangers, that is why there is also the good reason for some form of waiting to study for certain background investigations to be made. Um, you can't just meet somebody today, we are in love and we want to go and get married. You, you, you are not Adam and Eve. They, they were created, matured by God, and God was the one who put them together, and he was all righteous. That day, they have no option. There was, there's nothing unrighteous about Adam or Eve. It is God who actually brought them together. And the same day they saw themselves for the first time, he married them. But after that template, everything is not the same. So don't say that Adam met Eve the same day and they got married. So this pastor is trying to stand in your way. When we're growing up, we've seen people provide this sort of excuse. Uh, but anytime there's a place of first mention in scripture, you realize that that is never repeated in the same context again. Ever since Adam and Eve were created as the only creatures ever to be created as matured adults, every other person who came, including the Son of God, were born as babies and grew. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and made a mighty inaugural ceremony. Flames of fire, wind, noise from heaven, all of that. And then people spoke in tongues. After that, anytime there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we only see tongues speaking. We don't see raw flame of fire sitting on people's heads. We don't see a wind in the place and the noise from heaven. It was an inaugural ceremony. The rest then follows the way God has ordained it to flow. Either lay on of hands or we are in a room praying and the spirit just fills you. But all of them, tongue speaking. Now, so back to the, the question. After studying some of these things for a while, it becomes necessary to allow some time for knowing each other very well. Because in premarital relationships, a lot of things can be, you know, you can be blind to many things because you are in love. And it's only that after you get married, then you realize, why didn't we see this? Um, I know a very particular case. Even that one, even that one, they had courted for some time. The daughter of a very senior man of God in a very major denomination. And with all of that, the gentleman still did not disclose something about himself. It was when they got married. Look, that church, they have done six months of counseling. They have done all the period of waiting and everything. But there's one thing this guy was still hiding. That he was impotent. He was unable to have an erection. And it is not something that he just discovered. He's been there. And he marries the senior minister's daughter. And then this comes out. Um, in the end, they, there was a divorce because he hid something which is not truthful. Uh, the law also permits that. And so you find out that even the, a church of that, it's not a, a church that is not correct church. It's a very, very sound church. And yet they had to proceed and bring about a divorce. 
to that. You can't be hiding things. And that's why sometimes we give the tithe. Sometimes also people have come rushing because he or she, he has made her pregnant. And because is that, it is not biblically correct to bless the marriage when a baby is in the womb. We must allow the baby to come out and bless that union first. Because we have to go back to the place of first mention. The scriptural provision is there. That's why the, the wedding of, of Joseph and Mary could not proceed. There's a baby there. Don't you think they could have blessed it? After all, what is it? Everybody knows it's not Joseph's son. So they could have blessed it. But no, spiritually it's not right. The marriage must be blessed for the two people with nothing. And then you bless them now to be fruitful. You can't have a fruit growing and now pronounce be fruitful and multiply. There was no fruit in Eve's womb when God pronounced be fruitful and multiply. So we see the pattern in scripture. And sometimes people try to play a smart one on church. And when that happens, it affects the integrity of the ministry because it serves as a wrong example when especially the church misses it. And some of these things have taken place in the past. And that is why it is rather wise to, you know, five months that you just got to know each other, depend on the circumstances. There's, it can't be a straightforward yes and no, because there may be certain circumstances that means that it should be allowed to proceed. But a lot of questions have to be asked. Um, and what is the motivation for such quick things that you want to do? Um, and if it is just because you don't want to have sex, uh, you don't want to sin, um, I promise you this is rather the time to exercise the self-control because marriage will not become a cure for sexual desires. Uh, if you can't control yourself before you get married, when you get married, you will see other people that you have desires for. And that is where your test also comes in. And so this should just not be the reason. Um, so I, I know I'm talking quite a lot, but I hope that I have answered your question. And whoever the person who has the question is, if I haven't satisfied you, follow it up with a question. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Papa. So uh, it is a yes and a no with some conditions That's right. attached. Um, so it is important. You said that it's important that you study each other. That's right. Because it's better to break an engagement than to break a wedding. Yes. And it's better to break a relationship than to break an engagement. Mm. So you have to learn and study each other and ask questions That's and right. investigate and know what you are going into. Amen. Sometimes uh, they don't even ask. We, sometimes they say they are studying each other, and I keep asking them, where's the curriculum? <laughs> Can I see the curriculum of the study that you are studying? You have not been asking questions. It's only you are Snapchatting. <laughs> and how cool he is. We don't eat cool in the marriage. Ask serious questions. What is the plan? Sometimes you need to even, you know, directly or indirectly need to, before you even make commitments, find out what the blood group and sickling status is. Because it can create a whole lot of problems when finally it stares you in the face. That probably both of you are carriers of the sickling status and the possibility, the high chance that you're going to give birth to, you know, sickle cell children. And, and you know that it is not a very easy thing to, to have said children. It's, it's, it's not pleasant. Amen. Amen. So, All right. 
the period of courtship is serious business. It's not um, Snapchat. Yes. And Lavi Davis alone. Yes, because snap, it will snap quickly and go away. <laughs> you, you won't find it again. Amen. Amen. I have a question. For yes. Me. So um, you said that it's the period of courtship is to, is to you know, learn and study each other. Mm. And there's no really hard and fast rule about how long or how short it should be. Yeah. But is there a period that is too long? Oh, yes. Of course, we can't, if we start courtship, we, we can't go and have a golden jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some people's courtship is going on to, you know, silver, silver jubilee uh, anniversary. Come on, we, we can't go beyond uh, two, three years. Some, you know, the longer it is, the chances of sinning is very high. And the possibility of disappointment is also very, very high. Um, sometimes people give, but, you know, experience has also proved that. You see, the longer it takes, you find out that so many things change. Uh, desires change, perceptions change. Uh, you get exposed to certain environments and so many things change and you find that somebody starts dragging his or her feet. Um, and, and so a lot of things can go wrong the longer we take. Um, we, it's, it just loses its whole significance at that stage, you know. So it, it becomes necessary. What are we waiting for? I, I believe, I believe that at most, at most, the longest, the maximum heat Three years. Thank you, Papa. As Bishop always says, you've been going out for too long. You have to come in. <laughs> <laughs> so don't go out for more than three years because it has its own implications. Yes. Amen. Yeah, amen. Um, we are staying on marriage, Papa. Yes. Um, I know that uh, this, the relationship and courtship, is a very hot topic, but we'll move on to marriage and Mm. Maybe we'll come back or we'll have it another time. Okay. But um, the next question is, is it okay for a Christian to have a traditional marriage without the church wedding or registry and still move in to stay with her husband or wife? Okay. Um, this has to be, it is very exhaustive in terms of the answer I'm going to give. Um when we talk about the traditional marriage, you know, that, that is what we need to actually solve. It has been a problem um, which has not been handled very well in the past. Um, every culture has their way of getting married. Um, it is not in the Bible that you should wear a white veil and a white gown drive from one point to the other. Every culture marries according to the culture. But there is the place of God in the marital contract and God's place will be given to him. Marriage must be between two individuals who are in love and then family then releases them. So family comes to give their consent and then that is done. Again, we go back to the law of first mention. That the first marriage ceremony was in the Garden of Eden. God had to play multiple roles. He had to play the role 
of the family member of the man and the role of the family member of the woman. And then he comes together and then finally pronounces blessings. And so then God takes the role of the priest again. And that is why up to today, we still have a priestly presence in that to bring in the third court. Now, when we say traditional marriage, if we have to use, let's say, Ghana or Nigeria as examples, and any of the African countries, I think that it is very clear that that is how we marry. Two families come together and a ceremony is held, prayer is said, and that is marriage. Now, we have, from the African mindset, have erroneously described this marriage as engagement. So, Back then, in the early stage of the charismatic Pentecostal movement, that was being not recognized by the Pentecostal and charismatic churches as marriage. But that, is, that was an error because that is legal. Two families came together. What, so what was all that fuss about? The father request for what you want, for what he wants, to give his daughter's hand in marriage. The male family obliged, brought everything required to give their daughter away in marriage to this person. And a ceremony was held. And a man of God was present. And a ring was also given. And prayer was said. And we call that engagement. Because we learned erroneously in terms of the African from the white man or the European that the two stages are an engagement, then the wedding. Now, so when, because it was going to be the ring being given to the woman, we called it the engagement. But you realize that the engagement of the European is classically different from the engagement of the African. Because the engagement of the African brought a whole family together. Two families were brought together. Whereas the engagement of the European is Chloe meeting uh, Samuel at McDonald's or just kneels down somewhere on the street. No family member present. No family is giving anybody married to anybody. And that's it. The, the European tradition, of course, which people have Again, we come in here and then we mix it because, oh, I'm engaged and he gave me a ring. No, when, 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 when someone gives Chloe that ring, either under the tree or at the park, she's supposed, by European tradition, she goes home and shows it to the parents, who would then send a delegation to Samuel's family and say, Chloe has come to say Samuel has done this. Therefore, when is the date? Then the family now heads over to the church and puts them together. Now, we always copy in an extravagant way. So in our own, we still, we always just move like three steps. Because in our case, Adwa meets Kofi, and then he says, I love you. Then he gives him some ring. Now, we are not sure this is no longer engagement ring, but he says it's a ring. Now, then we now go and do engagement proper with a whole entourage of families and everything. The Europeans' engagement was not like that. 
Then we leave there and then we head to church. So he realized that we have stretched it too far. Now, so by the tradition of the family, that is marriage. If we take the four marital laws in Ghana, you will find that the traditional marriage, which is the customary marriage, is legal. Now, let's move one step further. The reason why, after we have done what we are calling traditional marriage, we need to move on to the church, is because the law supporting the traditional marriage permits the man to marry more than one. So if he marries you only under the traditional, he has every right to marry another woman and you cannot challenge him under the law. But because we are Christians and we need to bind ourselves by the word of God that a man is supposed to marry one woman, we proceed further beyond the customary marriage to the ordinance marriage, which by law, the man or either party cannot marry more than another person except the person. And if you want to break it, you can't just break it. The traditional one, you can break it. You can just walk out because I can easily break another one. I don't need to go to court to break that one. But when we go further on to do what we call the church wedding or the registry one on top of this one, then if we want to break, we have to go beyond that. We have to go to court to get that done. And so at one level, it is recognized. At the next level, you need to cement it. And that is where we bring in the legitimate ordinance law to make it that way. So back to the question, it is legal. Amen. That was a really exhaustive um, answer to the question. Mm. So Bishop has explained to us that what we call engagement in, um, because I know about Ghana, I'll say Ghana, yeah. is actually traditional marriage. And um, you, have, you bring your families together. There's the two people who love each other. And there is um, a ring that is given. And we have a man of God to pray over it. And that is marriage. We go to church or we go to the registry to do the ordinance marriage and bind ourselves in a covenant with God. That means that you are only tied to the one person that you have married. Amen. Amen. And also um, with the traditional, you realize that it is only the man who gives the ring and, and the woman hasn't given hers back, you know, to him. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not complete. You know, so we, we, because we introduce that <laughs> into, the, into our ceremonies. Um, yeah, so we need to get the balance. I know that in the past, we've fused the two together under the same ceremony and, and it's done. Yeah. I have follow-up questions yes. as usual. <laughs> so um, you said that for the traditional marriage, uh, you have a man of God to pray, right? And it's considered marriage. So what's the, the role of the vows that we say in church? Does it matter whether you say those vows or not? And then I have another one. I don't know. Maybe answer okay. this one and then I'll ask the other one. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, because marriage is a covenant, if you look into the scriptures. So when Adam and Eve were brought before God, 
of course, Adam began to say certain things. Um, and then God then pronounced a blessing. And it's, it's once there is a covenant, there must be an oath. So that is the vow. Um, and these things were also picked when Rebecca was going to be given away. She was asked again, would you go with this person? Mm. And she was asked three times, and she affirmed it. Um, and then part is also picked from Ruth and Naomi's relationship where it says, I'll go where you go, and your God will be my God, etc." So there must be something that actually we have said to each other because it is a covenant. Remember, marriage is not man's idea. It is God. It is a blood covenant. And as a result of that, we have to say vows to each other. Now, because you are blessing a union which may appear physical, but spiritually you have invoked the spirit realm, the moment you invoke a deity, there must be the exchange of vows. And that seals it. Um, you notice that at the, what we call the traditional marriage engagement, there isn't that. And again, like I said, it's only the man that gave the ring. He hasn't, you know, the woman hasn't said anything to him yet. Even in those circumstances, sometimes in certain situations, he's asked to take the ring. Okay, say some few things to her. But you realize the woman is still never asked to say something to to him and so why is this a one-way traffic but at the church level then we have now come before God and now you make these vows where both pledge their throat to each other and that is where um, it becomes necessary uh, because then you bind yourself by that oath to each other unlike those who don't have God who just even when they go to the registry, they are made to say some legal vows to bind, bind them together. And so how much more, if the world who are not even saved finds it necessary for vows to be said even at the registry, then when you appear before an altar, there, there can't be that without. Because again, it is a covenant, not just an agreement. Because a covenant involves blood and it involves a deity. That is why marriage moves a step ahead, just not like anything we just meet and let's just come together and do something. So God's pattern for it is always that way. Um, so when it comes to the vow, that is the reason why we, we, we see the Thank vow. you, Papa. So the, the wording of the vow, I know that in our church we have a standard wording that we, we do. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when you watch um, some wide weddings, uh, people um, write their own vows. They don't really say the, the vows that we say as well. And they say all sorts of uh, interesting things. <laughs> Does the wedding of the vows matter? Yes. And I think that is where a lot of people are making fanciful mistakes until somebody tries to test the law and challenges the validity of the marriage. And I can tell you, if they take you to court, they will win. What makes the marriage legal in every jurisdiction is the wedding of the vows. And even the location. People have seen people, you know, getting married in a garden and they are, <laughs> listen, nobody has challenged your marriage yet. But I tell you, under the law, if you have a wedding in my garden, you know, we can be smiling about it. But if somebody decides to challenge the validity of the marriage and takes it to court, they will win. Because when it comes to the marriage, the, the language, I'm sure the lawyers will affirm this, the, the language of the vows matters to make it legal. Secondly, the place 
where the marriage is solemnized must be registered under law to get it solemnized. So if it is not registered under law, it is an illegal marriage, just that nobody has actually troubled you, uh, but your marriage can be challenged depending on where it is carried out and the content of the vows. So we see fanciful Hollywood style of saying certain things. And that's why when you go to the registry, they tell you, you must say it this way. And I remember that when we were getting registered by the home office to solemnize marriages in the United Kingdom to be given our certificates. Not every church has that. Um, we had our thing. When the marriage officers from the home office came, they told us, you know, when they are starting, please make sure this one is, we want to see what you have before. You know, and, and when they saw it, I said, oh, okay, that's fine. It's, you are right. So make sure that you add this and that as well to, to the end of it. But we wanted to start with this wedding, which we were already using. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's very, very important that they are even particular about it. You know, when they say, I call upon these persons here present, it is the law requires you say that. You see, so that is why when you go to the registry, you realize they want you to say it in a particular way and you can't turn it any other way around because it is legal. The only reason, as I say, is because we get away with so many things until somebody decides to trouble you. Mm -hmm. Somebody can just decide to trouble you and say, I want to challenge the validity of this marriage. And then you find out that the, the law has got its own line prepared. So the wedding is important. I have this follow-up question here, which mm. says, where did the format of the vows come from? Mm. And after saying that, are you allowed to say your own personal vows as well? Um, yes, but that is when we have said something. You realize re recently something came up with um, the Harry and Meghan Oprah thing. And Meghan made a statement that they got married a day before I realized that the Church of England came, the legal department said, no, it wasn't marriage. Because they, they, you have to say certain things. You can't say that you say that in your house or wherever. That is not a place where you see what I'm talking about. So where she said that, you realize that others were trying to say, then your marriage is not legal. She thought she just said something to say, look, we got married before. But then the church had to defend itself. And the legal, uh, the bishop in charge of legal affairs came out to actually provide enough reason to say, no, you wanted to say this to yourself, but in the context of the law, you were not married the day before. You were married on that day in the chapel, and that place is licensed for that. And the content of what you said, your marriage is not the one on the Friday before the archbishop. That is you wanting to say something to you, but you can't say you married in secret. Then your marriage is illegal in the first place. You know, so back to what you were saying in terms of the of the, of the format of the wedding, as I said, some of the words were picked from interactions in scripture where somebody had to ask someone for someone to respond. So Rebecca was asked and she responded. So it became a platform. Back to, um, and, and with Adam, he, he started talking um, and then God then pronounced blessings. So the format has its part in scripture and its part in law that when it is worded this way, it becomes legal. That's because you said this and that in the presence of an ordained minister who is licensed to solemnize marriages. So it's not just any ordained minister, but after your ordination, you proceed to receive a licensing from government that you, you represent government to license marriages. 
A lot of people, again, made mistakes, think any pastor can bless their marriage. He can pray. But legally, he may not have what it takes if the law comes to actually solemnize or legitimize the marriage. Because marriage is, con is considered as, as, as a binding legal thing. And, and that is why the, the wedding is both biblical and a combination of legal uh, things. So I have to ask this question before yes. I'm accosted by some young ladies after the service. Um, in our church, mm. if someone wants, after the vows, mm. if someone also wants, the couple wants to say a few own crafted vows, do we allow it? Yes. Yes. That is after we have finished the legality. So we can, you can say something, uh, but that, that will not mark the legal vow. But at least in order to start your romantic journey, you are allowed. You are allowed. Equa, you, you'll be allowed. You'll be allowed. Nancy, you, you'll be allowed. Okay, Nancy, you'll be allowed. Uh, yeah. Sarah, Sarah, you, 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 you are allowed. <laughs> I have to check the content. Oh, would you want to see it before, Papa? Yes, so that they don't say some things which may not be appropriate publicly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, we need to protect the front of the church. <laughs> Thank you, Papa. Yes. Um, I have one other. Mar when the marriage ones come up, you know, the questions um, are a lot. But yes, it's welcome. Yes. It's welcome. Um, on the issue of rings, mm -hmm. are you required mm. to wear a ring? especially on the men's side, because I think women are more than happy to wear them. Mm. Um, sometimes you have some men who feel that they don't really want to wear it, number one. Mm. And number two, if you're a woman and you've done your, I know in Ghana, when you do your traditional marriage, you get what we call an engagement ring, mm -hmm. and then you get another a wedding band when you do your um, church marriage. Should you wear both of them? Or can you choose to wear any of them? Oh, okay. Um, of course, as we, anytime we do the, <coughs> the introduction of the ring ceremony, we always say that it is a symbol, a, a never-ending symbol of your love. And so just like God believes in symbolism and God manifests himself in the form of various uh, symbols to us, uh, we need something that reminds us. Uh, because we are forgetful people. Um, and, and when God created us, he knew us. That is why even when he wanted to give us the first commandments he gave to us, he himself inscribed it in stone, not on paper. Stone. And when you look into the Ark of Covenant, you only find a few things in there. And one of them is the, is the, is the stone with the law inside it. Now, because of that, the ring is a physical reflection that I made a commitment to you. And, and it is also because we are spiritual people, we pray over it and dedicate it and, and, and connect it to the marriage because dedicated things have deity following it. Now, because of these facts, um, the ring is a very important thing to put on. Uh, there are others that feel, I feel very uncomfortable. 
but then why would you? What is very uncomfortable about it? Unless it is too tight on your on your hands, but at least it's supposed to publicly identify that you are married. I know that people uh, wear rings and still commit adultery and things like that. So as people say, it doesn't matter. Well, stay faithful to your vows and be a different person. Um, so yes, we may not see black and white in Bible that says get a ring at all costs, but we need something to remind us that this is an ever-ending, a never-ending cycle of love, and it is also made of precious metal. That means that we deem our marriage very precious in our own sight and in the sight of God. So the symbolism is very deep uh, than just ring we are putting on together. Um, in terms of what, whether you should wear both, um, the first one was presented, um, which is what was presented in the presence of your whole family and which was what the father of the lady requested. And so that has a very important significance because as far as the family is concerned, that's what they ask for. And that is the token that they look out for. Mm. The next one is the one that you both give to yourselves. And that is why the man only wears his, but you have the two to put on. So the lady puts on the two and it is because each of them has its significance in terms of uh, the history I've just given. Um, so as a result of that, there shouldn't be any difficulty in, in, in wearing that. And for the man, you shouldn't be afraid to wear yours um, because of the significance I have just shared with you, that it represents something so precious to both of you. And remember, if you are not wearing yours, she gave that to you. So why is it that you gave yours to her and she's happy to show it and you are not happy to show hers? Because what you are wearing is not yours. It's hers to make a mark on you that you are mine. But you don't want people to see that she's yours. And you say you're uncomfortable. You have to put it on. <laughs> All right. Did Amen. I answer the question? Or yes, is please, there Papa. A, a question that no. I missed of all the questions no, you've asked? No, you have. You've answered. So we've had a, a really good um, marriage seminar <laughs> <laughs> and a marriage counseling session. Thank you very much, Papa. You're welcome. Um, for the answers. Please, with your permission, I have some two questions here that I want to take before we close. Okay, let's take it. Thank you. So we've, we are moving from marriage and we are going to our Christian journey now. Mm. We've done a bit of traveling today, but we have been blessed. The, question one, the first one says, what do you do when you have burnout as a Christian? So when you have a burnout, that means that you are, you are exhausted. Okay. Uh, we know the scripture that says that upon the strength of this food, you can go many days. Uh, Elijah ate that one. Um, we know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But there also comes a time where we need to also rest. We can be very busy about the Lord's work. But I want you to understand that the Lord also gives us wisdom to learn to take some rest. Um, even when they conquered the land, God told them, when you enter the land, you farm it every seven years, leave 
leave the land to rest so it can recover. Even Almighty God, who never grows weary nor grows tired, rested on the seventh day. Telling us that there is a place of rest because that means failure to rest will result in a burnout. I do remember, I think it's in agricultural science that we, 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 we learn that you know, the land can, can grow, uh, the law of diminishing returns. I know it's economics as well, but then it also applies in agricultural science where you have found the place for a long time and all the new trends are, are gone. You know? So sometimes we can burn out. I think an appropriate scripture comes to mind when we share this. I think Mark, Mark 6, Mark chapter 6, um, will be very helpful. Um, I'm trying to find it. Um, otherwise, it could be Mark 3. It could be Mark 3, really. Probably Mark 3. Yes, Mark chapter 6, Mark 6, verse 30, or verse 31. But let's take it from verse 30. You remember that from verse 6, earlier on, he had called the 12 and had sent them two by two. And they had gone and preached the gospel. And the Bible says they healed many and anointed many with oil and cast out demons from many. And then they returned with testimonies um, about, you know, the mighty work of God. And then the Bible says in the verse number 30 that the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And then he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. So when we get a burnout, out, we should rest. Because we can keep on going, but we'll just be like a vehicle that is going on and it's not receiving refueling. And your sharpness and the quality of your output will begin to go down. The anointing resides in the body. So if you, I'm not talking about excuses and laziness because Bishop now said it. So now when Pastor Imona say, Eva, come to Come and you are on duty. Say, Bishop said we should rest. I'm having a burnout. Don't let the devil know that you are not speaking the truth. Let it be that you are really, really exhausted. Jesus said you should come apart for a while and rest. After they had gone to do so much work. So sometimes we'll be going on week after week after week after week. But sometimes it's just a day of rest can be good. Or just some two days of rest will be very good. So if you are suffering any form of burnout... First of all, what you are describing as burnout must be properly diagnosed. So you may have a conversation with your pastor so you can describe how you are feeling so we can tell properly whether this is really a burnout as a result of ministry or it's a burnout as a result of your own secular job. Because we need to put the two distinctions, you know, make it very clear and know where is the thing coming from. Because you can be given some two days of rest and actually still not curing it. Is it an emotional burnout as a result of heartbreak? You know, so that's why it's very good to seek pastoral advice and even sometimes seek 
a professional advice. So we can be very sure what type of burnout are you having. And that will inform the kind of rest that can be prescribed. Amen. Amen. So, yes, the, the burnout must be investigated to find out the source of it. But rest is important. And that brings me to the last question, Papa. Yes. Is it okay as a Christian to go to therapy? Right. It is okay. I know that some people have stretched our faith to a point where it has made us look very, very ridiculous to the unsaved world. That because we are people of faith, it is seen as if it is an act of unbelief to seek professional medical or therapeutic intervention in any form of ailment in our bodies. I'm not sure the extent of the therapy uh, this questioner um, is asking here, but it can range from a very bad temper to an emotional stress um, to you know, any form of physical body weakness or disease and therefore you will at a point we will pray whether you are being seen by consultants or whatever we will not remove prayer but it does not remove the fact that God has given wisdom in the solution that he brings to us in terms of healing and that's why it's gifts of healing and so there are people who have studied the human body which God created and therefore, we'll be able to provide some professional, um, you know, advice and intervention which will help cure you. Um, we know that there are some places where they are told, don't go to hospital. We are praying. Listen, the Bible says, Luke, the beloved physician. I don't think in our dispensation, anybody has more great faith than the great apostle Paul. And yet, for some reason, he always had Luke with him. And in introducing Luke, he always says, Luke, the beloved physician. So, if even in the New Testament, and Luke is also filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the writers of the New Testament, the scripture tells us in Peter, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the scripture. If the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke, the physician. That is why you see the language there is a very learned person who wrote them. So Luke and Acts were written by the man called Luke. He was not apostle as we know, but he's one of Paul's companions and a very hard worker. Maybe somewhere later on he became an apostle, but it is not recorded in scripture yet. But this man still carried his professional uh, background with him um, to the point that you could tell that Paul suffered a lot of bruises and brutal assault you can imagine how does he get quickly recovered because such a man was always by that now this man who the holy spirit filled to put together two holy scriptures god cannot be wrong in using someone with such a medical background to write holy scripture if the medical profession is not necessary so if there is anything you are suffering Pray, if it's persisting, let's seek help whilst we pray. Sometimes we pray and our prayer helps the doctor to find out what is happening to you. There are also things that doctors can't handle because they may be spiritual in origin. And no amount of stethoscopes and microscopes from doctors cannot see 
doctors, microphones, microscopes, and stethoscopes cannot see demons. So we, we, we hold both hands together and, and take it forward. And, and God, by his grace, is able to intervene and bring healing. I've seen, sadly, certain churches where some of these young, young prophets who are not really uh, spiritually matured and academically sound think that everything is spirit, faith. You don't need these things. They've allowed a lot of women to die in their churches because they stopped them from having caesarean section. Ladies, if the baby must come to the world through caesarean section, you are no less a woman. You are still the woman God made you. And because of, you, can't, you must not die as a result of that. Because sometimes the position of the baby requires, thank God for knowledge, that the womb can be opened and the baby can be delivered. And it is not a sign that you don't have faith. My prayer has always been, if that is how God chose to bring the baby to the world, let's welcome the baby. It doesn't make the baby less of a human being. And it doesn't make the mother less of a woman. Amen. Thank Amen. you, Papa. So, yes, uh, we are allowed to seek help from skilled people and people who are learned in, in the area of health, mental yeah. health, physical well-being. That's but right. we do not take prayer out. That's I know right. I said it was my last question, but I have one more. There's one more. <laughs> when it comes to um, especially therapy, mm. I know that there are some therapists who have some really strange methods and procedures and all sorts. Mm. So if you have to go into therapy, must you seek out for a Christian therapist or does it really matter where you go? Um, yes, indeed. Um, medicine itself had, in its origins, had some mysteries around them. Um, and of course, we look at the medical scene where you see the snake and all of that, which of course, in certain occultic practices is also uh, applied. There's always some mysticism around medicine from ancient times. Um, and so it is very important when we get born again, we must not be ignorant of the devil's devices. It's not everybody that we will just give ourselves to, to, to manage our bodies. So if we have to go for therapies and, and those things, we have to find out what is it. For instance, when we're talking about mental health, please go to um, you know, government-approved qualified people to, to do that. Anything that is going to involve some form of mysticism, walk out of it because it may sign a covenant that you are not aware of and may bring you into trafficking with demons who are always looking for another body to use to express themselves because they are disembodied beings. Uh, there are people that practice very strange uh, forms of therapy uh, that has got some spirituality assigned to it. And that is what you need to be very careful about so you don't go into certain covenants uh, in your ignorance because you are looking for help. Uh, when I get to the hospital, my eyes are very wide open uh, to make sure that I, things, I don't take anything for granted. And I don't even take certain statements for granted. I think I've shared this testimony before where I had to go to emergency because I was having central chest pain. And any medical person knows central chest pain can be very serious. It could be the heart is having a problem, etc. And I got in there and then this, uh, the consultant comes to see me and then, you know, two other uh, people who are learning uh, also come along. Uh, they are doctors, all right, but they are in their very early years. So 
Um, and then one of them says, oh, if you have, then you're about to die. And I say, in the name of Jesus, I'm not dying. And I ask the consultant, please ask her to leave. Say, oh, she's joking. I said, no, I don't take joke. This one, you can use such words in this environment. I understand the spiritual atmosphere of a hospital. I'm not taking this. This is an emergency. I have come in here. And you say, I'm going to die. No, I don't want her to see me. And I insisted on my rights. They asked her to leave. She lost an opportunity to learn with my precious body. <laughs> but I'm not going to allow any demon to speak through her or any statement she will make in my state of vulnerability for that atmosphere to be binding. You need to be spiritually smart. And I can give you testimony upon testimony of church members that I may have followed to the hospital and certain things was going on and certain statements and I have to counteract it. And, and, and in the end, we've seen the testimony that it saved their lives. So um, whoever you go to, be spiritually alert. But we don't forbid going to seek professional medical help when you need it as a Christian. The Bible did not forbid it. And it is all right to seek therapeutic intervention. But you just need to be wise to see that there are not occultic things linked to them in any way, shape, or form. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Papa. We have to be spiritually aware. Amen. Amen. Church, help me to say a big thank you, as usual, with your claps and the shouts and the emojis to our very own Bishop, Bishop James Hansensaki, who has taken us through a journey from Leviticus to Revelations, marriage, Christian work, our health, and all things in between. Amen. Thank you so very much, Papa. You As always, God. it's a pleasure to sit under your feet Amen. to learn from the questions that we ask, and we are always very grateful. Amen. Amen.